This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you've joined us. Fast food is a really contentious topic. Beyond the intoxicating aroma of French fries lies an industry that is fraught with health issues, economic disparities, and food deserts. Most commonly, those things affect low-income communities of color. And according to our next guest, this is all baked into the history of one of the world's most iconic fast food chains, McDonald's. Marsha Chatlin is a Provost Distinguished Associate Professor of History and African-American Studies at Georgetown University in Washington. And she's the author of a new book, Franchise, The Golden Arches in Black America. Marsha Chatlin, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you so much for having me. So I... I, I am fascinated by just the very premise of this book. And before we get into discussion of the issue here, I, I really would love to have you uh, talk about this connection between fast food and civil rights and health in the African-American community. I'm not sure that listeners will automatically make those connections. Well, for many people who are engaged in conversations about health and racial disparities. There's often a point where the conversation gets to why there's so many fast food restaurants in African-American communities. And one of the goals of my book was to say, well, what is the history? There's nothing inevitable or natural about fast food appearing anywhere. It is always a result of a long process. And so in researching how McDonald's got into black America, I discovered a hidden history in which McDonald's targeted black neighborhoods for franchise opportunities after Martin Luther King's assassination in 1968 as a way to see if they could protect their stores in predominantly black neighborhoods in times of social unrest and uprisings. And they soon discovered that the black consumer market would spend a lot of money on fast food. And so then you started to see the shift in McDonald's marketing, in the recruitment of black franchise owners, and the expansion of fast food into almost every aspect of African-American life. Mm -hmm. And as you point out, it's an intersection of cultural and economic issues that make this uh, a sort of phenomenon. In other words, there is this growth of black wealth that is fueled by the prevalence of fast food restaurants in, in urban communities. But the flip side of that, of course, is that that has an effect on, on health. Absolutely. And my concern at the outset of writing this book was to say, we know about the negative impacts of consuming a high-fat diet. We know that fast food-rich diets are detrimental to African Americans and all people. But what I really wanted to look at is how the relationship between fast food and black America has more to do with a series of connections that have nothing to do with the food. So I talk about the ways that the early African-American franchise owners and their organizational strength played out in communities that needed things like first, job for, first jobs for youth, college scholarships, recreational opportunities. I talk about the civic and social work of black franchise owners to help people understand that when they are critiquing people's food choices when it comes to fast food, 
it is bigger than the food. It's not just about a hamburger. It's about a series of relationships that have been very active and very present in black America for 50 plus years. So let's start by talking about the role that the civil rights struggle in the late 1960s plays in this in this tale. Yes. So one of the goals of the book is to talk about the fact that when we think about the great sit-in movements of the 1960s, and we talk about the struggle for African Americans to access public accommodations, we often think about companies that are no longer in existence, like Woolworths or Cress's Drugs. But I focus on activism with McDonald's in the South, where the organization's that were leading the charge, like CORE and the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, actually targeted McDonald's so that they wouldn't do separate but equal service. Mm-hmm. And then I pivot to this moment where, after Martin Luther King's assassination, civil rights organizations were wondering, what's the next step? When King was killed, he was talking about the Poor People's Campaign, and he was being very vocal about his opposition to the Vietnam War. And while people were still concerned about those two issues, there was a pivot towards black business and black capitalism. And I think people started to focus on business development because it was one of those civil rights goals that you could actually realize rather quickly in comparison to fair and open housing or school integration. Hmm. I mean, there's something quite cynical and, and dark, I think, about the very idea of that, that, that civil rights and the civil rights movement almost is corrupted by this realization of money and opportunity, which is, again, I mean, it, 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 it can be at odds with the goals of the civil rights movement in the first place. Yeah, I really want to bring out those tensions in the book, because on one hand, it's very easy for us from our perspective to say that this is a matter of selling out. But I try to remind readers that in 1969 and 1970, when black communities are experiencing the consequences of social unrest, they're grappling with police brutality, the quality of housing is declining rapidly, and businesses are fleeing, and people are faced with fewer and fewer consumer choices, that a new McDonald's or a reopened McDonald's in your neighborhood could actually feel very hopeful. Mm-hmm. I think it's really hard for us to imagine a world without McDonald's today, <laughs> but for the early African-American franchise owners and the early days of fast food franchising in urban America, it was actually quite exciting. But I think that the civil rights establishment has long held those relationships with the black business class, whether it was black funeral directors, whether it was the few black bankers in a community, they've always had to keep those relationships strong. I think after 1968, there was more support from the federal government as a result of Richard Nixon embracing black capitalism, and there was more pressure to think of black business building as an extension of the civil rights movement rather than an oppositional force. Hmm. Um, I I wonder if you can talk about black store manager Roland Jones and his role in this moment of McDonald's and franchise locations in urban communities. Yes, Roland Jones is such an important figure to the black franchise community because he was actually dispatched Uh, from Washington, D.C., after Martin Luther King's assassination, to try to find a new, um, to try to find the very first black franchise owner. 
And basically what happened in that moment was that white franchise owners were nervous about doing business in black communities in the moment of unrest. There was a lot of racial tension between white store owners and black customers who felt disrespected or overcharged in various uh, retail contexts. And so Roland Jones goes to Chicago to meet the very first um, black franchise owner, a man named Herman Petty, who reopened a store that a white franchise owner left behind. And he was quite successful in a very short period of time. And other African-American men joined the Franchise Corps, and they later established the National Black McDonald's Operators Association. Mm -hmm. Uh, You write that the first black franchise McDonald's opened in 1968, and by 1971, the number was nearly 50. And while black black franchisees uh, usually earn more than their white counterparts, they're only allowed to run the most rundown and dangerous McDonald's locations. Yeah, so this is a source of tension that has existed actually for decades, this question of whether black franchise owners can access stores outside of black neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. Um, There was a recent report in Business Insider where those complaints remain, and part of the issue that people take up with um, being restricted in terms of where you can do business is because we know that due to the racially... um, uh, the the way that race operates in terms of business, that access to capital and loans, security costs, insurance costs in some black neighborhoods is higher. And so the black franchise owners in the 60s and 70s and the black franchise owners today are really struggling with this tension with a deep desire to do business in com- their community, as well as other communities, and the disparities in costs of running those businesses. And a continued desire to make the argument that they can do business in a number of places. So I, I want to read just a, a little from uh, the, the the conclusion of your book, which I think is really interesting in that it it starts in uh, Ferguson, Missouri, which is a city that that many of us are familiar with because of uh, the killing of Michael Brown by a police officer there, but but you managed to to put that in the context of this subject in in I think really remarkable terms. You write that eventually the news cameras, the protesters, and the National Guard cleared out of Ferguson, Missouri. In their place came a few new community programs and some more businesses. The quick trip that burned after Michael Brown was killed has been converted into an Urban League Community Empowerment Center and a Salvation Army mission. The Boys and Girls Club of Greater St. Louis broke ground for a new youth center on the former site of a Ponderosa Steakhouse. Over the course of four years, nearly $40 million in investments for new businesses and municipal improvements have flowed into Ferguson. Most of it has enriched the historic downtown and predominantly white sections of town. In 2016, Starbucks CEO Howard Schultz made good on his pledge to open a Ferguson branch of the Coffee House. Unlike most of the new businesses, the Starbucks is located on West Florissant across the street from the now-repaired and still-bustling black-franchised McDonald's. Poor and working-class black residents of the apartments and single-family homes near West Florissant Avenue have yet to realize much of the economic benefits of the renewed interest in Ferguson. It's an interesting way that fast food and fast food franchises play into the current narrative of rebirth and revitalization in struggling communities. Yes, I wanted to 
highlight two issues. Um, on one hand, African American communities tend to get attention after uprisings in terms of business opportunities and business development. But I want to caution people in thinking that this could ever be a singular strategy for really addressing the reasons why uprisings happen. I am often surprised when I look at the history of social unrest in black neighborhoods around racist, um, you know, racist violence. And commissions will come together and they'll ask people, why are people so angry and frustrated? And they'll say things like police brutality, lack of jobs, lack of good quality housing, overcrowding in schools, and disrespect from merchants and lack of black businesses. Hmm. And of those five issues, it seems like the business issue is where the resources can flow, and the other four issues, which I think are even more critical, get ignored. And so for there to be an infusion of capital into Ferguson after the uprising in the form of support for the wealthier parts of the community and jobs that aren't necessarily avenues to having a living wage reminds us that we can't depend on business to lead people to the things that they fundamentally need Hmm. to live lives of freedom and dignity and security. And that's a tough, that's a tough message in, first of all, a society that's organized around the principles of capitalism, but, but also in a society where African Americans who were locked out of those opportunities for so long have realized some success, at least in the last 50 years, by joining into that. I mean, it, it, there's, a, there's not just a tension there, but, but I, I think uh, opposing forces, I guess, at work. Well, I think my perspective offers this. I don't know if I have a major contention with a person opening a business. I think we can critique um, wages, we can critique quality jobs, we can critique access to health care, but no business should ever carry the weight or the burden of the failures of the larger government or the state. Mm. I would love to live in a world where going to McDonald's in a black community is just about getting a hamburger. But unfortunately, due to racism and due to discrimination and due to um, the marginalization of the poor, a McDonald's may be the only place where a person can access Wi-Fi, Mm -hmm. where senior citizens can have a place to spend time together and have a cup of coffee. I don't like the idea that for the entire history of black franchising, that the black franchisee has to play a role that I think should really be done by the state in terms of offering those first jobs, ensuring that there's some way for um, you know young people to pay for college, to sponsor the athletic programs that allow students to have access to exercise and fun with their friends. And so I hope my book can be a cautionary tale about how we create a vision for justice that does not say that it can only come through businesses because we have we have a state for a reason and i think that the state often ignores poor communities and makes them believe that business is the only answer yeah. and they abdicate the responsibilities and and that's become a tougher 
conversation in recent years as government has retreated from many spaces that it used to be very active in and business has moved into those spaces. What What's the lever that I guess that turns things in the in the opposite direction? Well, I think the lever has to be a reminder that people have power, um, even though our power feels stripped away and ignored um, on a daily basis, that we can ask critical questions of business in the business sector. Um, and this is such a tough message because people need jobs and they need opportunities. Um, but I think that for those of us who have more privilege and who have more options, who are leaders, we have to really push back against this idea that any job is a good job, that um, any type of business investment is acceptable when people are vulnerable. And I think that those are the important conversations that I've been able to hear as a result of people reading this book and taking a second look about McDonald's and other corporations and the ways that they interact with black communities. Yeah, that was going to be my last question. What, what the reaction you've gotten from this book, which, again, I think offers some surprising insights into these, into these relationships. At the end of the day, I hope that people um, have a greater appreciation for history and process. I love that um, when I go on the road with the book, um, people react um, from a personal and emotional space where they say, I remember being discriminated against in restaurants all my life, and I remember the first time I went to a McDonald's and how special that was. I've met people who talk about getting their first jobs from black franchise owners and what those people meant to them and their community. And I really love and to honor and celebrate that. And I also have heard people say, you know, I've never really thought about, you know, how much weight and pressure we put on businesses. And we talk about the presidential candidates and, you know, should they be in a position to say, that they want to give more people an opportunity to open small businesses, mm. or should candidates be talking about programs that everyone can access so that they don't have to feel like they have to be business owners in order to get the things that they need or their community needs. Okay, Marsha Chatlin, Provost Distinguished Associate Professor of History and African American Studies at Georgetown University and author of the new book, Franchise, The Golden Arches in Black America. It was really great to have you here with us on Detroit Today. Thank you so much. That's going to do it for me this week. I will be back on Monday when we're going to talk about the issues that are most important to Detroiters this election year. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again next week.